Turn with me in your Bibles again to uh, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, I'll be reading for you the passage that we have looked at a couple of times now. And uh, we're kind of looking at this in layers, so to speak. But I wanted to to just um, have this fresh in our minds as we go through this passage again. Beginning in verse 16, it says, "Let Therefore let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished in it together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase which is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh." Last week, we looked at what we called an invalid practice. And the idea of it being invalid is that there, there's, there's no real substance, there's no truth to it, okay? And so I've used that term. And we looked at four different areas, asceticism, traditionalism, sensationalism, and then meism. And then you see the big word that stands, meism stands for. But anyway, uh, as we're looking at that, we looked at Paul's warnings and description of the false teaching that had the potential of threatening the Colossian church. And again, we've been doing this for a while now, but again, checking it out in layers. So what we did was we examined the practices of these false teachers, which are these things that you see before you. So asceticism, just a reminder, what is that? Getting ourselves back into the passage. It's rules and regulations, artificial standards that either diminish, replace, uh, or contradict Christ and the word of God. Traditionalism, those are special days or practices that become either more important than or replace what they are intended to celebrate. Now I want to be careful how I say this because, you know, um, let me put it this way. It's, it's easy to kind of make a dig, and I don't intend to do that. But we do have to be careful when we say, for instance, Christmas or Easter, and we look at our celebrations along with our traditions. We don't want our traditions to negate who we're celebrating at that time, right? Nothing wrong with celebrating it. And there's nothing wrong with having the family times and other things. But there's still, again, that time of, of making sure that our focus is correct. So again, just taking that for what it's worth, it's just an example even that we might face of this idea of traditionalism. You know, just It's just what we do, but we miss the reason why we're doing all of it. And then sensationalism. We spent most of our time looking at sensationalism because it seems to be the most prevailing deception today. Uh, you could argue with me on that. That's fine. But I just, I just see a lot of this. It tends to be either some new insight or secret information that no one else knows or some unique experience. Um, in some ways, it seems like there's a, there's a brand of, of Christianity or even just religiosity that is kind of like, you know, the Marvel series. You know what I mean? 
It's like everything's bigger and better and fantastic and everybody can blow up the world, but everybody can save the world and all of a sudden it's just a lot of noise. Sorry if you're a fan, but I just look at it and say, how many characters do we need to explode everything or not? You know what I mean? Like if everybody's super powerful, then okay. You know, I don't need to see it. I know how it's going to end. Anyway. So it gets sensational, right? That's, that's what grabs our attention today. And so we kind of think of that when it comes to religion, you know, something new and exciting and, and something that's revealed that you never understood before. And I, as the false teacher, not me personally, but I have that information to give to you, right? And so we've got to be careful. And then there's the meism. False teaching by nature is a selfish act. It just is. It does two things. Counterfeit doctrines take our attention off of Christ and place the attention on man. The center of attention is both the false teacher and the participant. If you think about it, when we are involved in false teaching, when we are succumbing to that, then what we're really saying is, is that I have something that's, that's better, newer, greater than, than Jesus. I have something that's better, newer, greater than what the word of God says. And so then I become the center of that. What I want to talk about today is uh, what we didn't have time for last week, a couple more components of this. And the first one is an invalid authority. You see this in here where there's this, there's this idea that Christ is our authority. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in essence, the false teacher replaces Jesus as the authority. Paul provided a detailed description of the ultimate authority of Jesus Christ, the Lord. That's the exact title that he gave him. We study these elements in detail, but I want to uh, bring this beautiful description of Christ back into this context. Um, let's understand that we are at risk of being cheated out of an intimate fellowship with Christ and being cheated out of the rewards of faithful service. That's something that we have touched on recently. So let's be reminded about what Paul said about Christ in chapter 1. So if you're you know, right in your Bibles there, just make sure that you have chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 10. I'm just going to go down through several chapters or several verses and just give you some lines from those verses, some principles from there. Verse 10. And by the way, it's, it's about Christ and our being his follower. Okay, I want to make sure I understand that. Verse 10. Walk worthy of Christ. Verse 13. God transferred us into the kingdom of Christ. Now, think about that for a minute. Does belonging to a kingdom imply that there's a king? And if there is a king, is he not then the authority of that kingdom? So here we're speaking directly about Christ's authority. Verse 15, Christ is God. Verse 16, Christ created all things. This explicitly includes authorities, both visible and invisible. So who is greater, the creator or the created? Therefore, all things were not created, uh, were, were not only created by Christ, but they were all created for his good pleasure and purpose. Because the scriptures tell us that all things were created for him. 
Then in verse 17, Christ is before all things. This is not a time reference, but an authority reference. Paul follows up by saying that Christ may have the preeminence or superiority over all things. It's not that he may have as in, boy, hopefully that happens, but that we recognize that Christ has the preeminence. Verse 18, Christ is the head of the church. Verse 19, all the fullness of God resides in him. And we had that uh, a cross-reference here in, in, in uh, chapter 2. And then verse 20, the Father reconciled the fallen world through Christ's death. And verses 21 and 22, the Father reconciled us personally, former enemies to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The only correct conclusion we can draw from this is that there is no legitimate authority over the church apart from Christ himself. Now, let's integrate all of this to this threat of false teachers. Again, we're talking about their authority at this time. False teaching seeks to dethrone Christ and replace him with another far inferior belief system. It's, it's what they're out to do. In the case of the Colossians, the false teachers were trying to initiate their invalid practices we reviewed a few weeks ago. Uh, a few minutes ago, sorry about that. I don't know. Uh, the core error behind all of these traditions and teachings is that they're designed to diminish Jesus. And they do that by teaching that he was just a mere emanation or a lesser God. Do you remember us talking about that? They worship the angels and they kind of included Jesus as part of that, where he was just this lesser God. He couldn't, he couldn't be the greatest God because we can't really approach him. But we can approach these lesser gods and engage with them. That was the false teaching that was trying to be initiated. One of the things that we need to be certain of that we need to completely understand is this, that Jesus Christ, the Lord God of all creation, is not diminished because people get him wrong. Do you understand that? He doesn't change. God does not change. It doesn't matter what we think of him. So the vital takeaway is that those who follow false teachers have placed themselves under another authority, a false authority. And let's be honest, people have this uncanny tendency to want to find something new and different, to place themselves under some power that is not healthy for them. I'm not saying you do that. I'm just saying that people tend to do that. Let's, let's look at this in a practical sense. And young people, I'm going to pick on you, but I'm picking on me at the same time, Right? Our parents tell us to do something, and our friends tell us to do another thing. And what do we do? We say, I want to please my friends. Just so you know, they are false teachers. <laughs> How do I know that? Because my dad told me so when I got home after I did what they told me to do. <laughs> right? So it's just that simple. We have a tendency to... Do something that we're not supposed to do because of the influence of others. That's exactly what we're talking about. So how can a believer have a right relationship with Christ if they're convinced that he is someone other than the scriptures reveal him to be? Just absolutely impossible. 
it would follow that if someone has a diminished view of Jesus, they will certainly miss the rewards of properly serving him. Remember, Christ Jesus loses nothing. But the deceived Christian loses what is most important in this lifetime, a worthy walk with Christ and all the blessings that go along with a faithful life. That's what we're in danger of losing. That is what Paul is so passionately warning them about. Part of that was telling them who Jesus is, and part of that was explaining to them who these false teachers is about. And right now, it's this struggle with authority. I mean, come on. Has anybody here ever struggled with authority? What was the boss thinking? Who were my parents thinking? What was that teacher thinking? I mean, I don't know how we can go, right? Based upon our study, we have gained a better understanding of why Paul pleaded and reasoned with the Colossian church not to let anyone deceive them, which brings us full circle to how or why. Of all people, how can a reconciled, redeemed, rescued child of God be fooled? Or why would they want to put themselves under the authority of somebody else or under the standard of someone else? Now, here's the thing. The answer is going to sting us a little bit. But I really believe this is the answer. We don't have faith. When we depart from Scripture in search of anything else, what we're really saying is that we don't believe Christ is enough or we disregard him as our authority. Is that not true? We simply don't believe. If we believe something else, we can't believe him at the same time. So we've reminded ourselves that Paul clearly explained the person of Jesus Christ and the gospel. You notice, I keep on saying that. I want that in our minds. Just like these Colossians believers were at risk, we can fall prey to one of these deceitful, fake beliefs. This can happen when we validate the judgment of others. We do this actively by agreeing with them, right? What The judgment that you're giving me is true, or by passively allowing these judgments to determine who we follow, right? We don't have to like necessarily outwardly agree with them. We just change how we live. So who is doing the judging in this passage? I want to be clear here. Someone suggests that the words, don't let anyone judge you, are directed to church members who are judging other members. And folks, I don't use these terms very often, but I I really highly disagree with this conclusion in this passage. Paul describes this church family as faithful and loving. When Paul addressed problems in other churches, he did not speak in the third person. He would have been direct with the Colossians just as he was direct with the Galatians and the Corinthians. Everything that we have seen thus far shows an attack from the outside. Paul is not afraid to mince words, right? Actually, he doesn't mince words. He's not afraid to speak directly. Sorry about that. I just minced words. Anyway, so what, how do, how do we, um, what do we do about this? I, I don't want us to gloss over this phrase and miss an extremely important facet of Paul's warnings and instructions. The thrust of Paul's argument about Christ and our standing in him is that we ultimately don't answer to anyone but Christ. 
Now, I understand that there's a response we have to, to one another, but I'm talking about as far as who is going to be our authority, right? We're talking about Christ. This, of course, this of course goes back directly to the authority of Christ, but that authority is woven together with how we are expected to live. Therefore, we are not subject to any other authority except what we find in Scripture and more specifically in Christ. So because of that, I want to make another very important point in relation to this idea, don't let anyone judge you. An invalid judgment results from an invalid standard. Right? We judge by what? By a standard that we lay down. So here we have... Nothing on the screen. But he, <laughs> here we have a situation where they are, they are judging these, these Colossian believers. Well, with what? With obviously standards that they are laying down. So according to Paul, part of being deceived is allowing ourselves to be measured by the wrong standard. Think of it this way. If I ask you to tell me how tall a glass is and you tell me that it holds 24 ounces... Did you give me a measurement? Yes. Did you measure the glass? Well, technically you did. But was the right measurement used? No. So see, it can even be close, but it can be off. It's not the right standard. Now, what I want to do is inject, interject a couple of important dialogues that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And folks, it's going to take you a little bit to keep, to, to keep with me on this, but I think it's worth it. We're going to be looking at these purely for comparison's sake, since they are very rich in meaning. But again, there's some takeaways here. So what I want you to do is I want you to, to listen to four elements while I read a couple of passages and so I have those for you here. We're going to start in, in uh, Matthew 23. I have those reversed on my notes here, but Matthew 23 is where we're going to start. So if you'll turn there with me to Matthew 23, and then we're going to jump right over to Mark 7 to read these. But what I want you to, to consider is these four things. The standards and traditions, right? And obviously we're talking false standards and traditions. The mindset of the false teachers, the effect of the word of God and the truth and the effect of the followers of the false teachers, right? So I want you to consider all of these, how it affects the word of God and how it affects Christ's followers, okay? Or I'm sorry, the followers of the false teaching. So these four things are what I want you to kind of have in your mind as, as I read. So I said turn there. You might just want to listen and, 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 look, and, and look at these um, uh, elements as I read them. So starting in uh, chapter 23 of Matthew, it says, And then Jesus spoke to the multitudes to, and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Is that authority? Yeah, that's authority. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens and hard, hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries. That's, that's those 
things that signified the word of God on their, on their foreheads, right? They make their phylacteries broad and they enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the, the best places of feasts, the best seats of the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be, be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. I just want to pause here for just a minute. Jesus is flat out telling them, I am your teacher. I mean, this isn't written about Jesus. This is Jesus saying this, right? So then he goes on. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be a base, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, one follower, And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Wow. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sacrifices the gold? By the way, I just want to pause for just a moment. Couch and all this, just remember, Jesus basically said, Stop swearing. Stop making promises. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But he's, he's illustrating something, right? Verse 18. And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, for by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so... You also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves, you and your sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt, serpents, brood of vipers, How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Now, those are the heartwarming uh, words of Jesus because God is all about just love. 
No justice, right? Sorry. Uh, turn to Mark chapter 7 if you want to read that. And I'm going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. This is a, obviously a smaller passage, but it reveals a similar thing. And he said to them, All too well you reject the command of God that you may keep your tradition. Obviously, he's talking to the same people. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corbin, is dedicated to the temple. In other words, any help that I am obliged to give to you, I've dedicated that to God. And you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down and many such things you do. Folks, we have an invalid judgment that hits us all the time. And it's begun by an invalid standard. Paul makes a very powerful statement if you go back to Colossians chapter 2 in verse 23 where he says this, Rules do not produce righteousness. Rules do not produce righteousness. Verse 23, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They sound right, they feel right, they look right, but these things won't prevent us from sinning. Now right now there might be a few young people saying, See, Mom and Dad, Pastor Scott said that rules do not produce righteousness. It's not quite where I'm going. We need to be clear here, not to just the young people, but to all of us. Complying to any standard on the outside doesn't necessarily change a person's heart. That's the danger of these different things that we're talking about, of just doing and doing for doing's sake. That is not going to produce righteousness. Here's some examples. A company employee can dress like they're told, keep the right hours, even voluntarily work overtime. I know some of you are groaning over that. Treat coworkers with respect and do everything they're assigned to do and do it with excellence. And that same person can steal hundreds of thousands of dollars from the company. A student can obey the teachers, turn in all their homework on time, get along with all their classmates, not run in the halls, not mark in their textbooks, and still turn in a report from the internet that someone else wrote. A church member can come to church every Sunday, every service, tithe, witness faithfully, attend pro-life rallies, attest to all the right teachings, and even teach a Sunday school class, and one day leave their spouse and children behind for a happier life. And most of us have seen that happen. Folks, God still has a standard. I want us to understand that. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But living by a standard that isn't his just to do it, living by rules just for rules' sake, isn't going to produce a holiness in our lives. We say that we receive eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by good works. And that is true, that is right, and that is a wonderful testimony of God's faith and God's grace. 
But there are still all kinds of standards and precepts and rules to live by in order to give evidence of the, of the faith that we have and to please God with our lives. God has a standard for living even in our freedom of faith. We now have the freedom to willfully and even joyfully submit ourselves to the authority of Christ. What I want us to see is just one verse, actually it's a couple of verses together, but one passage that, that really kind of encapsulate this. I, I love what he wrote, what Paul wrote to Titus. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord, great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Notice again, we have the person and work of Christ punctuating this, right? Who gave himself for us that we, he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. See, we were redeemed from, and then we were told to purify ourselves from, right? So the redemption from doesn't mean that we're now sinless forever, practically speaking. When God sees us, he sees us as a pure people. But we've still got some things that we've got to deal with that we have to get rid of. So there is a standard. And the standard ultimately means that we want to glorify him, right? But when we shackle ourselves to standards that either go beyond or negate God's word, just like we saw with the Pharisees, we are subjecting ourselves to man or worse and not to God. On a very practical, daily living level, we, are no, longer, we, we no longer see the Lord as our authority. And frankly, we surrender our service to fake requirements. So this begs the question, why do we do this? Why do we subject ourselves to spiritual or moral standards that either replace or contradict God's standards? Now, when I say, why do we do this? I don't mean necessarily everybody personally does this, but we can. Maybe we have in the past. I don't know. But most of the time, it comes down to the pressure and influence of the world around us, just like the Colossians were experiencing. And by the way, this might be the religious world. Here are some examples of the judgments levied against us. And I'm going to hit you from different angles here. You are mean and unloving to those who have an alternate lifestyle. Now, this may be true. We have God's word to actually measure ourselves by to determine, are we being mean and unloving? But now let me say it in a little bit different way. You are mean and unloving because you say that an alternate lifestyle is sinful. You aren't spiritually mature if you don't speak in tongues. Or you aren't even saved unless you speak in tongues. There are groups that would say that. God never commanded us to stop keeping the Sabbath. Working on Saturday and worshiping on Sunday is wrong. By the way, these are false. I just want you to remember that. Okay. God is light. He has put his divine spark within all of us. His presence is everywhere and God is in everything. Your narrow beliefs are limiting God and his love. 
You ready for this one? Your illness or your difficult circumstances or your financial struggles are different signs that God is judging you. You are either living in sin or you lack faith. Oh, and by the way, if you don't have enough faith, you're living in sin. Folks, you see how this works? People can put a standard out that is not biblical. It might sound good. We have God in this. We have words like love and, and acceptance and other things. And, or, or even do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. Whatever, whatever comes by. It's the standard that the judges use. And if it's unbiblical, folks, we have no responsibility to follow them. So let's finish this part of our study as we apply these things. Let's first consider how we treated this part of our study. Um, Paul's argument against the false teaching went like this. Uh, and, and this is kind of how I worded it. Uh, they're wrong practices, what they do. We listed these wrong practices first because they are most easily recognized. So I wanted to see, what do they do? How can we identify them, right? Then we looked at their counterfeit authority today, who they think they are. We then saw how they set themselves above God's word and even above the Lord himself, right? And then there's, their illegitimate judgment, how they apply a false standard. They exercise their authority by judging with a wrong standard. And of course, the end result is then doing the wrong thing. So it brings us right back to the wrong practices. Everything Paul explained has two very destructive results. I want to read for you. We can read it together. Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Folks, we know that the head is Christ, and we know that the body is the church. So the two very destructive results are this. False teachers detach their followers from Christ because they are detached from Christ. And false teachers detach their followers from true fellowship with the church. This tells us that their goal is to separate you from Jesus and isolate you from the body. So what happens if you are not properly led by Christ and you're not properly fed by being a part of the church? And let me make this clear. I'm not talking about teaching only. I'm talking about the fellowship. I'm talking about the interaction. I'm talking about serving one another. I'm talking about being with one another as a body of believers, right? What happens when we are detached from our Christ, from our Savior, and from the body that really represents him on earth. Practically speaking, our Christian life is dead. If we, if a member of our body becomes detached physically from our body, it's no longer living. Now, please understand, I'm not talking about losing our salvation here. 
I'm talking about that practical living in Christ. We have detached ourselves from him. We cannot be positively worshiping him. We cannot be properly serving him if, in fact, through what we are adopting as our authority and as our practice, if it's opposite of what he teaches, if it's opposite of who he is. So in order to apply this properly, in order to really dig into this, folks, we need to consider any philosophy or even any activity that keeps us from Christ and his people as a threat. Now, I understand that we have jobs that we need to have, and sometimes they take us away on a Sunday or a Wednesday. I understand that there are times when we're going to be away for vacation. Folks, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about adopting things that we make greater than Jesus. Don't let anyone rob you of an active, vibrant walk with our Savior and all the blessings that come from that by embracing counterfeit doctrines and unbiblical rules for living our life. And can I just note there, no matter how exciting they may make it look, Folks, all of us have watched the infomercials, okay? Everything they sell is really exciting. It is going to change your life, right? Whether it's a gutter guard or a pill, okay? It is going to change your life. Am I wrong? So that's what I'm trying to say. It's all hype. It's all hype. It's all a bait and switch. It's a replacement of what is true for what is false. And it's nothing short of replacing a good nutritious meal with poison. We've got to be careful. We've got to watch out for each other. We need to make sure that what we're teaching here is appropriate and proper. According to God's standard, not according to man's. So as we strive to do that together, let's just simply be warned. Let's be warned as Paul warned us. Don't let anyone steal your relationship with Jesus. And don't let anyone steal the vitality of that relationship and the relationship that we have with one another. Don't let them take away the rewards that God promises you by living a faithful life for him. Let's pray. Lord, frankly, you know my heart. You know this has been a a weighty topic. Um, (laughs) There aren't a lot of scriptures that don't have some weight to them. And so just to be clear, Lord, it's not a complaint. But it's been tough to go through this. I imagine that when Paul wrote his letter, it was difficult to write to the Colossians. There was, there was an anxiousness in his heart that we can, we can really sense, we can feel. And all of it was because they were possibly going to throw away the most greatest and precious relationship on a practical basis that they could ever know or experience. And that was having a right relationship with you, their Savior. 
So, Lord, that's what we want to be all about, but that's what we want to warn about. Lord, please, we're begging you, and I hope that everyone is joining me in prayer in saying this. Keep us from, frankly, the silliness that is out there, from the sensationalism, from the rules, from all these different things that can distract and, and frankly, really damage our walk with you. But as the opposite is true, we pray for a vibrancy, for a newness to our relationship with you, not because of some added experience, but because of a greater appreciation of who you are and what you have done for us as a result of this study. Again, you have given us a book that is very, very Christ-centered. And so as we have examined it now and think of it today and then continue to examine it, Lord, I pray that we'll constantly be, be just redirected to the goodness of your Son, to your grace in giving us Jesus, even as we looked at several weeks ago. You taking all of those things that were against us and nailing it to the cross of Christ. What an amazing thought. What a gracious God. What a wonderful heavenly Father. And so it is with gratitude that we close our time in prayer, but it's also, Lord, in praise and, and of just awe of you, our Savior, our Creator, the head over the church, the one who is over all things, to you be the glory. In Christ's name, amen.